You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages Warren Faber presented on interpreting the gospel from Gull Lake Bible Conference 1975. Dr. Warren Faber was dean, executive vice president, and professor emeritus at Cornerstone University and a graduate of the Moody Bible Institute. Now, here is Warren Faber on Today in the Word radio. As we continue our seminar in discovering meaning and significance in your Bible reading, we want to take a look today at interpreting epistles. And I want you to do some of this with me as we learn how to interpret epistles. We've been talking in this seminar about the fact that all of us have problems in interpretation. And we wonder whether we can really come up with meaning that is right. Other people have different opinions. And we're going to talk about how you can test the validity of your opinion. We talked too about the fact that when we start interpreting the Bible, it's important that we start with a Bible that we can trust and can understand, that we rightly divide the word of truth, and then that we have a sort of process that we go through. When we talked about process, and we're going to keep on talking about this all the time, when we talked about process, we said to you that there are four words that are very important. Meaning is a word that is important. And when you come to this Bible, you never bring meaning to it. It's only the author that can tell you what the text means. And in the case of the Bible, we have two authors. The secondary author, the human author, and we also have the primary author, or God, who is behind all scripture. But when it comes to meaning, we want to ask ourselves, what does the author mean? We want to make sure that we understand it, and so we're going to put this into our own words, and then we're going to check the text for some implications, and then we're going to make an application to our life. Well, that's the general process, and now we want to zero in a little bit more particularly on the kinds of material that we're going to interpret, because all of the Bible isn't the same kind of material. There are songs, and there are stories, parables, and there are letters. There's a different kind of material as you open your Bible to different places. And this morning we want to just confine ourselves to one kind of material, epistles. First I'm going to make some observations about epistles, then I'm going to give you a few guidelines, and then we're going to uh, do a model, and we're, you're going to work with me, and we're going to see if we can understand what these are all about. Now, when one stops to uh, take a good look and do some counting, he realizes that about one half of the New Testament is in letter form. 21 of the 27 books, and then we noted too that there are seven letters in the book of Revelation. The word epistle comes directly from the Greek it means to send to, and that's a pretty good name for a letter. Now, there are six New Testament writers, 
Paul has written 13 of the books in the New Testament, 13 letters. John has written three. Peter wrote two. James wrote one. Jude wrote one. And one book, I think, is anonymous. Some people think that Paul wrote Hebrews. I rather agree with Origen, who says, God only knows who wrote Hebrews. That's why I call it anonymous. But you have the uh, 21 epistles, letters, in the New Testament. Now, the interesting thing about this is that letter form in a book like the Bible distinguishes the Bible from all other religious books. There are no other religious books in the world that have letters in them. Now, these letters are the product of a new age. God is burst in in a very wonderful way. He sends his son into the world, and then Jesus lives his life and shares his teaching, dies on a cross, is buried, rises again, ascends to heaven, sends the Holy Spirit, and a new age comes into existence. And letters are written during this new age, and these letters throb with a passion for truth and a love for souls, concern for the church, and a desire to carry out the Great Commission. And the claims of Christ and the work of God's Holy Spirit turned these holy men of God into inspired, writer, inspired writers who become prophets of truth, preachers of grace, lovers of men, missionaries of the cross. These letters are very personal because they tell us about Jesus, about his birth and death and resurrection and ascension, and how he is going to work in the lives of believers as he sends the, the Holy Spirit to us. Now, these letters, these 21 letters in the New Testament, have become the textbook of the spiritual life of the Christian church for all time. These 21 letters are of more value than all of the books of theology that you can buy. And everybody ought to start out, as he is concerned about understanding the Bible, he ought to start out by mastering the nine church epistles. Someone says, well, what are the nine church epistles? Well, Romans and first and second Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and first and second Thessalonians. These are church epistles and they're very important. They're important that you get a hold of them and that you master them. And after someone has read through the Gospels and uh, with new Christians, I suggest that you start by reading a very short Gospel, Mark that you go directly to the book of Acts and see the gospel spread and the, and the church planted. And then you go into the letters and realize that here these men are sharing with new Christians things that men ought to know about Jesus, things that uh, men ought to know about how you live the Christian life. And so these nine church epistles, very, very important as you begin to 
search the scripture, as you begin to read the Bible, as you begin to say, I want to discover what this is all about, what it means, how significant it is. Now, I want to give you just a few guidelines before we start out working in the epistles, trying to interpret them. First of all, I recommend that you read a letter in its historical context, and by that I mean that you ought to know all you can about the author. Who wrote it? Who were the readers? What was life like in those days? What were their needs? Know all you can about when it was written, to whom it was written, why it was written. And then a second thing. You ought to read a letter through in its entirety. I said to my wife, her name's Glennis, I said, Glennis, when you get a letter, do you ever take a letter and start on page three, line two? And she looked at me and said, why, no, I don't. I don't ever read a letter that way. I said, well, how do you read letters? She said, well, I pick up the letter and sometimes I look to see who wrote it. And then I read it through in a hurry. And sometimes I go back to certain lines and I kind of read them over again and see what it's all about. And that's the way you ought to read a letter. And these are letters. There are 21 letters. And you ought to pick them up and find out who they're from and read them through the whole thing and then go back and do just a little bit of careful reading of lines that have struck you in particular. So you ought to become familiar with the general content and note the special significance of the letter, then kind of analyze it verse by verse, taking a look at the sentence structure in each word and then paraphrasing and amplifying. That's sort of the idea. And then when you come up with some ideas that may be different, as you've been interpreting the letter, you're going to have to prove your interpretation. I like to also know some implications and record some applications, then put this in a form that I can share it with others. You say that sounds kind of mechanical. Well, let's try it. Let's see what happens. Open your Bibles to the book of James. The book of James. Now, I'm going to just get you started in this. You're going to have to do a lot of the work yourself, but uh, we're going to just talk about James. Now, I suggested that when you start reading a letter, you find out a little bit about its historical setting, who wrote it. Now, the author of the book of James is the half-brother of Jesus. They had uh, the same mother, he had different fathers. The father of James was Joseph, and the father of Jesus was God. Uh, but uh, they were half-brothers. He's called his brother in Galatians 1.19, and he's often referred to in the Bible. And one of the very interesting things to do is, if you do not have a Bible with these kinds of helps in it, to go to a concordance and, or to a Bible dictionary and look up James. And if you look up James, you'll find out some very interesting things about him. Now, you'll not be able to copy these down in your notes, but you will have time to copy the reference down. So let me tell you a little bit about what I found out about James. 
In 1 Corinthians 9, 5, we find out that he was married. During Christ's early ministry, we find out in John chapter 7, verses 3 to 5, that he did not believe in Jesus. They were born in the same family, and when Jesus began to go out and began to preach, James thought he was beside himself. We would say out of his mind. He said, something's wrong with my brother. He's not acting right. He's starting to make claims that I don't understand. Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 7. And after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to James. And when he appeared to James and James saw his brother risen from the dead, he became a believer in Jesus Christ. He was born again. And he, with other brothers, appears in the company of the apostles in Acts 1:14, Before long, James became a very important person in Jerusalem, became the recognized leader of the church there, Acts 13, verse 17, chapter 15, and that is recorded also in Galatians, chapter 1 and verse 19. And he became known as James the Just, and he writes this letter to Christian Jews. Now, these Jews are people who are living outside of Palestine. And this is written to them not because they are Jews, but because they are Christians, and because James, James has a kinship with them, and he's concerned about their life. And as one takes a look at this letter, he finds out that it tells a lot about life and attitudes. When one takes a look at the general content of the book, he realizes, as he's reading James, that's made up of short sayings. It sounds a lot like the Proverbs or like the Sermon on the Mount. The theme itself is Christian living. And uh, you get some impressions as you read the book that if you have a workbook, I've, re I've recorded for you. Now, I'd like to give you a few references about the readers because I think this is very important. Now, most of the time as we're reading through a book, we will get the impression in the book uh, and from the book. We will, we will learn a great deal about the readers, and it's a good thing just to sort of make notes to you, to yourself, so that you know who they're like. Now, these readers were Jewish Christians living among the Jews before a formal separation of Christians took place from the synagogue. In fact, as you read here, uh, you, uh, you get the impression that they're still meeting in synagogues because it says, if anyone come into your assembly, chapter 2, verse 1, your synagogue. And so they're still meeting in meeting places they call synagogues. <clears throat> James considered them to be the true Israel of God, and they weren't scattered just about, although they were outside of the land. They were planted. They were the diaspora. They were the people who had been seeded by God, seed planted, and they were there by His providence. 
They had been scattered among the Assyrians and Babylonians and the Egyptians and by Alexander and Ptolemy and these people are spread probably in the eastern part. Now, a careful examination of this book will point out a number of things. You might want to take the references down and look them up. Chapter 2, verse 1, they hold the faith of Christ. They're no longer under a yoke of bondage, but under the perfect law of liberty, chapter 1, verse 25. They're mixed up with men who blaspheme the name of Christ and persecute believers, in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Most of the believers were poor, chapter 2, verse 5. The rich were in danger of falling away through covetousness and worldliness and pride, chapter 1, verse 10, and chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. The rich were generally considered persecutors and oppressors, chapter 2, verses 5 and 7. The church was organized and cared for by elders, chapter 5, verse 14. And I noted for you that they met in a synagogue to which strangers were admitted, chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. They were exposed to trials of many kinds, and you can find many verses. And there was much that was lacking in their lives. They had a weak faith. They were inclined to murmur. They talked religion, but they didn't live it. They lacked love for men. They were haughty to the poor. They were censorious, quarrelsome, given to oaths, ambitious, self-confident. You read the list of all of the things and you say, it sounds like the church I belong to. And you realize that there are people here that have needs. And because James is concerned to change this, he writes a letter to them directed by God's Holy Spirit. Now, it's a good thing, too, to pick up a simple one-volume Bible commentary or to get a book like Haley's Handbook and just to get an idea of what the whole book is about. You have this sort of help when you read another kind of book. For example, you very seldom pick up a book that doesn't have a table of contents in or an index. And so I think you ought to use these outlines sort of as table of contents and say, all right, I want to know what the letter of James is all about. And if you would open one up, you'd find that it would be outlined something like this. Lenski outlines the book by saying it consists of, of 12 parts. The first has to do with trials and temptation. The second with hearing and doing the word. Third with respect of persons. Then with a barren faith. Then with the teacher and his tongue and control of the tongue. And then with two kinds of wisdom, spiritual, heavenly wisdom, and worldly wisdom. Talks about being a friend of the world and an enemy of God, about speaking about a brother, about planning business without regard to God's will, about impending judgment upon the ungodly rich, and about patience until the Lord's return, and then give some admonitions. Well, that's what it's about in general. And so we say, all right, we're going to interpret this letter and we read it through in a hurry and we get a little bit of an idea about it, but now we're ready to do some careful analysis of chapter 1. 
And uh, I'd like to sort of consider the first eight verses with you, but uh, I'm uh, not going to have all of that time. I'll get you started. But we know that this section has to do with testing and trial. I personally feel that this is the most important portion in all of the Bible on how you should face testing and trial. I think it gives more help for people who are going through problems and facing trials and tests than any other portion, any other passage in the Bible. We'll just sort of walk through it, and now we're going to be doing that analysis of words that you and I ought to do. James, a servant of God, it reads. Isn't that interesting? We know he's his brother. And he doesn't put his thumb, you know, in his vest and say, James, brother of Jesus. He says, James, humbly, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. Something had happened to him. You don't very often find a brother who says, I'm Tom's servant. That doesn't go too well in families, and those of you who have brothers know that. But you see, there was something unique about this brother. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes, he's writing now, to Jewish people, 12 tribes of Israel. But these are Christians. People have become Christians, which are scattered abroad. Scattered, that's that word for planted like seed. It's the word for sowing of seed. And he says, greeting. Hello. <laughs> greeting. That's the way all letters start. We always put our name at the end. The writers of letters in the New Testament put their name at the beginning. That's where it ought to be. Uh, they always say, dear John, you know that you're John. You don't need that. <laughs> they say, you know, <laughs> they say, uh, I'm James. I'm writing to you. Greetings. That works out very beautifully. Now he starts out. My brothers, and uh, these are Christian brothers, people who know and love the Lord, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, and we don't get very far reading this before we have problems. But most of us feel that when we get into trouble, if we grit our teeth and grin and bear it, we ought to get an A for effort. But he starts right out by saying, count it all joy. And that sort of bothers us. I suspect that if I came home and uh, said to my wife, well, hallelujah, praise the Lord, I just wrecked my car. She'd turn me around and start me out and say, would you come back in and try that over? And here it is, count it all joy. But you see, we don't interpret this way. We don't start and talk about joy. We, we want to read the whole verse, don't we? Why is it that we're to count this joy? Knowing this, Count it all joy when you fall into every kind that is diverse, every kind of test or temptation, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. 
And we realize that when a test comes, that God is testing our faith. You see, God doesn't buy Christians with a Cadillac or a mink coat. He's not in that kind of business. He wants you to love him and believe in him for who he is. And one of these days, if you're a Christian, you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, you're going to be put to the test. We sing the song sometimes, it pays to serve Jesus, it pays every day. Well, it does pay, but it doesn't always pay in American dollars. And one of these days, you're going to be put to the test, and it's going to cost you something to be a Christian, and God's going to find out how strong your faith is. So when a test or tryout comes, you say, well, Lord Jesus, you're trying my faith, aren't you? So you count it joy because you know that nothing happens in your life by accident, that God lets it come in, and uh, then he's going to use it to test your faith. And uh, he goes on to say, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. As faith is tested, we learn how to be patient. Now, patience is a word that speaks about endurance. Patience sounds so negative to us. It sounds a little bit like letting uh, the steamroller run over the cat, you know, and just looking and saying, oh, the steamroller ran over the cat. Uh, that's patience. No, that's not patience. Uh, that's apathy. Uh, patience really involves being willing to take it, willing to endure, willing to see it through. And so we're reading now, and we're trying to get these words together, and we realize we have to read sentence, the whole sentence. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into every kind of test, because you know something about these tests. You know that they are trying your, patience, or your faith, and as your faith is tried, you learn how to, to take it, to endure. But let this patient endurance have her perfect work. Let it be completed, that you might be perfect and entire, wanting nothing, very literally, and nothing coming short. And then it goes on to say, if you lack wisdom, if you lack wisdom, that's the one thing we come short in when we face trials. We just don't know how to handle them. We don't know what kind of action to take. And the wonderful thing is that if we come short, we don't know how to respond, how to act when God is testing us, then we, we merely uh, have to say, Lord, give me wisdom to respond in this test as you want me to respond. You know, this is a favorite verse of college students. Did you know that? If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. And some college students don't study, and just before the exam they said, Lord, give me wisdom. And you know what? He does. He gives them wisdom never to try that again. <laughs> God does not give knowledge to us just by our praying to him he doesn't communicate facts and information. We're going to have to study that like anyone else. But he will give you wisdom. He will give you an understanding of how to act, what to do in a time of trial and test. 
And I think that's a very wonderful. Now, we've been talking about that just a little bit, and I've been working through the words, indicating to you that what we want to do is to make sure that we're working with sentences and we're getting the whole thrust of what is being said. And then we're ready to do something by way of implication. And after we've done that, we apply it to our own lives. And then one of the things that we need to do is to put it all together and communicate it. Now, I'm going to give you the, f the answer. You know, when I was a student, I found out that I had, uh, in grade school, I never was a student. When I was a pupil in grade school, I, uh, I found out that there were answers in the back of the arithmetic book. And I used to write them down. I always had them write. But I found out after a while I didn't know how to do the problem. Uh, I want you to do the problem, but I'm going to give you the answers so that after you get it all done, you can see whether you've come out somewhere the way I have. And so this is the way I would actually communicate this to others if I were going to teach this section on James, having worked through it, having read it, having come to grips with some things, and I would, uh, I would put a caption down something like this. This is under uh, putting it all together. James teaches the Christian how to view sufferings. This is what he's doing in verses 1 or 2 through 4. And I'm just going to talk about 2 through 4. I'm going to have a Sunday school lesson, and all I'm going to do is teach three verses, 2, 3, and 4. Imagine that. I'm going to talk about how James teaches the Christian how to view testings. The first thing that I'm going to talk about is this very start, startling admonition. He says, consider it all joy. And I shocked you when I told you about, you know, hallelujah, wrecked the car. Praise the Lord, lost my job. <laughs> well, it starts out that way, doesn't it? When he starts out, consider it all joy, doesn't that just pick you right up and startle you? And yet that's an admonition which a lot of Christians have never been able to, to really follow. I know a lot of people who are going through testing that aren't joyful about it. But that's the admonition. Not, not just grin and bear it, not see it through, but count it all joy. And I talk about that a little bit. Then I would note something else. I would talk about penetrating insight. Here is teaching that has penetrating insight. Isn't it a wonderful thing to discover that trials are a testing of faith? And the Lord is taking your faith out on the road to test it, not to ruin your faith, but to prove to you that your faith will see you through the most difficult times. And so that's a wonderful insight that testings that come to us are really proving our faith. And you say, thank you, Lord. For, uh, for the confidence you have in me that you really would set a test into my life because you think my faith is strong enough to stand up under it. And it makes you happy, really. The trial, the test never makes you happy. Nobody ever cares to be hurt or feels happy about walking away from a wrecked car. He's always happy that he can walk away from it, but... You're not happy about the wreck. 
And when you view trials and testings, you're not happy with the testing or the trial. You're happy with the purpose of it. Then he makes, uh, a re he gives a, us a single reminder. And he says, knowing this, knowing this, he says, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Well, some of us don't know that. But uh, God wants to develop this matter of patient endurance, and we need to be reminded that that's the only way that we're ever going to become strong, just by going through the tests. And so we, we need to be reminded of that. And then he gives us some profitable advice. He says, let patience complete the job. And I suppose that that's so difficult for us to, to just keep on going until we do become mature Christians. Well, that's a sort of uh, taste of what you can do and some of the things that are going to emerge. And I want you to know that after you know what a letter is about and you begin to analyze the, the lines, the sentences, you'll begin to discover so much in that Bible that you'll just want to jump up and, you know, shout for joy. I was working through this very carefully, and uh, one day as I was working through it, I came to this verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And I was reading it in my Greek New Testament, and it said, Let him ask of the giving God who giveth liberally and abradeth not, never gives you the back of his hand. And I just, you know, I just wanted to shout, click my uh, heels together, jump up and down and say, well, thank the Lord. This is the kind of God he is. He's a giving God and he loves us and wants to give to us. And in that trial and test that you're in, oh, make sure when you need the wisdom to know how to react and how to how to move forward and what to do. You say, Lord, help me. And know that he loves to have you come. I had a lady who came to me once. She said, I never asked God for anything for myself. And I watched her for a little bit. And she should have. She needed a lot of things. <laughs> you and I need to ask. We need to ask for ourselves. God wants us to come. And he never gives us the back of the hand. He never says, oh, you miserable Christian. Why are you always coming and begging and asking and asking? He's the giving God, and he gives liberally, and he wants to do this. And if you're facing a trial or test in your life, he wants you to know that it came for a reason. He's going to make you strong, and he'll give you wisdom so that you'll know how to act. Well... You start wrapping your soul around these first few verses that deal with trial and test, and you'll be going out saying, Lord, I think I'm ready. Give me a test, you know? But get a hold of the word so that when the tests come, you'll know how to face them. Well, that's the way to read epistles. Now, you can do it. You just get started. Read the whole thing through and then start analyzing it. Learn as much as you can about the author and the readers, and you'll find that epistles become the easiest parts of Scripture to interpret. You say, well, I know that. I have trouble with other things. Parables, for instance, they're a real problem with me. All right, let's turn to the parables then and see what we can do with some parables. 
If you have a workbook, it's page 70, and we're going to talk about interpreting parables. The word parable really comes from a Greek word, parabolo, means to throw alongside of, always involves a comparison. Whenever you're talking about a parable, you're talking about a comparison. And we take and we compare commonly known earthly things with spiritual realities. And uh, there's always something that the earthly story has in common with heavenly reality. And we want to find out what it has in common. That's the important thing. Now, there are some parables in the Old Testament. Balaam speaks in parable. Isaiah tells about a vineyard. Ezekiel talks about the vine and talks about three sisters who are adulterous, and he's referring to cities of Jerusalem and Samaria and Sodom. But when we get into the New Testament, one of the things that immediately shocks you is that all of the parables of the New Testament are given by Jesus. Now, isn't this interesting? Here's the one who's made the world. Here's the one who's lived in heaven's glory, now comes into this world. And if there's anybody who knows heavenly realities, it's Jesus. And if there's anyone who knows how earthly things compare with heavenly realities, it's Jesus. And so he's the master of parable of comparison. And one of the things that you want to be sure to do, remember, we said only the author determines the meaning. When you come to a parable, don't start playing with it, seeing what you can do with it, how many fine stories you can make out of it. Say, Lord Jesus, what did you mean when you gave to me this parable? That's the important thing. Now. Jesus used parables for two reasons, and it shocks some people when they find this out. He used parables to conceal the truth. There were people who were opposed to him, and he used parables to conceal the truth, but he also used parables to reveal the truth to his own disciples. Now, when you read the parables, you realize that the parables center about Christ, and they tell of his ministry and his kingdom and his servants. And when they talk about the kingdom, sometimes the parables tell us about the nature of the kingdom, what it's like. Sometimes they tell us about standards in the kingdom. Sometimes they tell us about the growth of the kingdom. Sometimes they tell us about the struggles of the kingdom. Sometimes they tell us about the victories of the kingdom. And when he talks to his servants, he usually is telling them about their responsibilities as they live for him and as they serve him. Now, whenever you start looking at a parable, you ought to first of all say, how does this parable relate to Jesus? Are any of the persons in the parable Jesus? You know, a sower went forth to sow. Is that Jesus? Is there any truth in this parable about his person or about his work? Is there any word from him a second thing that you and I must do, we must ask, how does the parable relate to the kingdom? And there we get into some difficulty because sometimes we read kingdom of God and sometimes we read kingdom of heaven. 
And sometimes we make distinctions between the two, and then we find out that Luke always used kingdom of God, and Matthew usually uses kingdom of heaven, and they tell the same parable, and we get further confused, and it helps sometimes just to make a distinction between whether the thing is something that is going on now, this kingdom that we're talking about is something that is present or something that is future. It helps to make that distinction. Then you ought to note how the parable relates to the church and believers, because some of the parables relate to the church and to believers. Now, we're going to interpret some parables. Are you ready for that? Let me tell you first of all what we're going to do, and then we'll move through them very, very rapidly, and you're going to, uh, you're going to be uh, making some responses as we move through them. Now, if we're going to interpret parables, the first thing we ought to do is to find out how Jesus interpreted them. His disciples didn't understand them, and so they said to him, Tell us what this means. And he told them. And uh, so we have a little pattern here on how Jesus interprets parables. And we're going to take a look at three of them that he interpreted for them. Then we ought to also search the context. Whenever you read a parable, sometimes you, you got an idea of what this is going to be about because Jesus tells you who he's talking to, and sometimes he tells you why. In Luke chapter 19, in verse 11, you read that Jesus gave a parable because they thought the kingdom was going to immediately appear. And so you say, well, this is about their expectation of the kingdom coming immediately. And he really is saying, it's not going to come immediately. I've got to go away first and return, and then we'll establish the kingdom. But sometimes in the verses immediately preceding, sometimes in the verses following where application is made, you get clues to what the parable means. And whenever you get a clue like that, you just be thankful because it's most helpful. Then we have to take a good look at the story. We have to uh, attempt to understand what it's all about. We have to know a little bit about the manners and customs and historical setting. Then there's something else. We want to determine the one truth, the one central truth that Jesus is trying to teach. Now, remember I said that a parable was something that was laid alongside of. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, and there's one particular truth that is being taught by this story. Always zero in on the one major thrust. That's the most important thing for you to do in interpreting parables. What's the one major thing that is being taught here? Father, we're thankful for this session that we've had together again, and we realize that there's a lot for us to learn. And we're not going to learn it easily, but we'll learn it by doing it. And so we do pray that these who have been here this morning might become men and women who read the Word, read it carefully, read it with profit, discover significance, meaning, apply it to their lives, and rejoice in this word that has been given to them and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, which helps each of us to come to a knowledge of the truth. So help us to rightly divide the word of truth and to 
find the reading of the Bible is just a most wondrous and exciting experience. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of five messages Warren Faber presented on interpreting the gospel from Gull Lake Bible Conference 1975. Dr. Warren Faber was dean, executive vice president, and professor emeritus at Cornerstone University and a graduate of the Moody Bible Institute. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.